welcome to Tone Benders, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and today we're going to be talking about imposter syndrome. So what is imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome is that feeling that you are not good enough to do what you're doing at your job. You're not you're not good enough to charge the money that you're charging. You're not good enough to be respected by your peers, etc. It's it's just the general feeling that you're totally faking it as an artist and somehow people are fooled by it, but you know the truth and the truth is that you suck. And I had a real bad bout of this very recently, but it's a common thing. It's one of those things that's common enough that I asked the community at large to give me a couple of stories about their own perspectives on imposter syndrome. And we'll get to hear those today. And we'll also get to hear one of my own stories about a pretty bad bout that I had very recently too. I think there's a lot to learn from examining what causes imposter syndrome. And also, I think it's important to develop a skill set and a tool set for identifying and working through and past imposter syndrome. Because the bottom line is, if you tell yourself you're not good enough, you're not worth it, you're going to conduct yourself in that way. And that's just not healthy. It's not good overall. So it's important to recognize a little bit about what causes it and to develop some specific tools to work your way through it. So without further ado, here are some stories. Hey everyone, my name is Jay Fernandez and I am a sound designer, musician, and audio implementer for the independent games industry. I've worked on a few mobile titles, um, also working on some bigger indie stuff that should be coming out this year. And I am part of an audio group where Renee put out a call for other sound designers to talk about imposter syndrome. So here I am with a microphone, and I'm going to talk about some of my deepest, darkest fears. So at first, I thought this was a great idea. I heard other people talking about it, saw some other people I knew adding to the conversation and thought, hey, I have some perspectives on this. Maybe I could add something to you since imposter syndrome is something I've dealt with before. And as I was sitting here collecting my thoughts, I was realizing that compared to what some others might be able to add, it felt like whatever I was going to add wouldn't really be that important. And then I started feeling a little more anxious about that and trying to figure out what I could talk about that would be meaningful and was slowly realizing that I was doing the exact thing that happens when you get imposter syndrome. I was comparing my work to others. I was comparing my experiences to others. And then I was trying to convince myself that if I didn't do this, and if I didn't talk about imposter syndrome, then I wouldn't have the chance to fail if people hated it or if people didn't like what I was talking about. So, great. <laughs> but what I really wanted to talk about was, especially when I'm working in indie games, you know, there's a lot of sound designers that bounce around um, and work on multiple projects and are usually contract. So I get to bump into some of them and meet them through various channels. What generally happens, though, is when I go to freelance on a title is I'll get their games as a reference. So to be like, hey, I'm working on this game. Can you use this award-winning game as a reference? We want it to kind of sound like that. Or we want it to kind of sound like this other game that also won a ton of awards because they're popular, so people know them and people use them as references. Now, I generally don't have an issue with that, but when it started in the community of people talking to each other about things that they were struggling with or dealing with, I was sort of realizing that my perspectives were a bit different than other people's. So one of those was that when you talk about getting paid, I think imposter syndrome can have a very big effect on how you present yourself to clients, to others, and how you internalize what a good amount to be paid is. And when talking with other people, I was realizing that some of the first projects that I did, which I think are the worst things I've ever done and are not that great sounding, please don't look them up. I was realizing that what I got paid for those was sometimes three or even four times the amount what some of these other sound designers are getting paid for their work. And what was surprising to me is I had that moment of 
if they're not getting paid more than I am, why am I doing this work? Why was that work able to get paid more? And very much I had that feeling of being an imposter at that point. Having known some of these people and seen some of their work, that was, in my mind, much more impressive than some of the stuff I had done. It was very surprising to me that a lot of people weren't getting paid what I had been paid. And so then I sort of started to relook at how my pay was working and talking to others and realized that I'm actually on point with a lot of people, but there's still that nagging feeling that, man, it feels like I'm asking way too much for this for what these people might be getting. And it's sort of a classic imposter syndrome problem where I'm not internalizing my confidence and my accomplishments that I've done because I have worked on some pretty impressive projects that were very challenging. And usually what happens is a lot of these new projects are challenges and it might be something I'm sort of familiar with. It might be music I've done once or twice before or a sound design style I've done a couple times. And with enough time, I'm sure I could come out with a great product. But there's always that nagging feeling of, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing right now. This is not going to turn out well. Why am I even being paid for this? Unfortunately, I haven't really figured out how to solve that yet. So I keep working with clients and I keep making sound effects and music and I just keep doing what I'm doing, hoping that one of these projects will sort of convince myself that I am supposed to be doing this and that I should keep doing this, even though I love doing it. So I'm always going to do it, but it's nice to, to feel good about the work you do. My name is Jack Menhorn. I'm a sound designer at Boss Key Productions, and I'm also a contributing editor at designingsound.org. I'd like to talk about uh, comparing my own work to those of others with more or less experience than myself. Coming out of high school, I didn't really know what I was going to do yet, and when I finally decided to do game audio... When I started going to college, I was a few years older than others, and if for the longest time I felt like I was hamstrung or I had made a mistake or ruined my life because I had waited. Of course, it wasn't until many years later, and then I saw the people that I went to college with, and none of them were actually using their degree, and I was at least tangentially using mine. So all of the wasted effort in wondering if I was going to be able to do anything with my degree turned out to be just useless spinning of my own wheels because, in fact, uh, it turns out that I don't really use my degree because I got it in piano and I don't even play piano. I don't even own a piano anymore. So that was sure as hell a productive use of some sleepless nights worrying about if I was going to do anything with my life. Then comparing myself to people I went to GDC with and saw that they were younger and they had more exciting jobs and were doing seemingly fantastic things on wonderful projects. A few years later, I realized that my assumptions of their career paths were not exactly correct. Maybe they weren't actually in the best situation. They were working more than probably was healthy. The job wasn't actually all that secure and the the glamour that I felt I was missing was not real. It was just uh, something I made up in my own head. I, I mean, I didn't land my full-time job in game audio until I was 30 years old. And, you know, seeing 20, 22-year-old people who had been lucky enough to get an internship and know what they wanted to do earlier than me, and they, they got these cool jobs. And here I was worrying if I would be able to ever catch up with these people and wondering if I could ever uh, reach the same level of success they did. But in the, in the end, I ended up in a very good situation that I'm very lucky to be in and would not have been able to get in the situation had I not taken the path that I did. All that said, I don't think comparing yourself to others, regardless of if you are in a good spot or a bad spot, is in any way productive. You are an apple and everyone else is oranges. 
your situation, your circumstances, your abilities, your talents, your capabilities are yours and yours alone. The only person you should compare yourself to is yourself a year, five years, 10 years ago. Are you in a better spot than you were then? If not, then evaluate what you need to do to get back on the path of the success that you want to get. If so, then great. Done comparison. Move on with your life. Be productive and follow your dreams. I know it really doesn't help to have someone else say, don't be nervous or anxious about these sorts of things, but there's no reason to be. As someone who has spiraled down the abyss of anxiety about this kind of garbage, it doesn't help. Hopefully over time, you will realize if you if you do suffer from these issues that it doesn't matter and that eventually good will come of your practicing and your research and your some total experiences. And hopefully you'll have people that help you out as much as people who helped me out did. And you'll be able to do what you love and what you want to do with your life. So, yeah. I'm Matthew Martinson. I work at Clay Entertainment. I co-host the podcast Beards, Cats, and Game Audio, and I founded the Game Audio Slack channel. How does the industry or company culture influence creative insecurities? I think it goes along with just about everything else when it comes to company culture, at least. A good company is going to lessen your insecurities and make you feel confident in what you what you're doing. Um, and a bad company is going to increase them. It's real easy for a company to go, I think, either way. A good company is going to make you feel that you've been given a job and you're in charge of that area and that your ideas matter and that you're the expert. Anybody who's going to make you feel that you are the expert in your area is going to decrease your insecurities, I feel. The the flip side of that is if you work for a company where you're constantly being second-guessed, that somebody else is always making the decisions, that you're not being the expert in your area, then there's they're probably going to increase those insecurities that, that you may you might have. I'm really lucky that I work at a company that doesn't do that. They really empower me to do what I think is is right for our games and right in the audio area. Of things while still taking feedback from everybody else. And I think that's something we have to learn that taking feedback and advice from other people in other areas doesn't mean that we're not an expert in our own area and that we're not, that we don't know what we're doing. So, and as far as the industry goes, you know, it's, it's the same. There's definitely going to be people that make you feel that you don't know what you're talking about. And there's going to be people that, that do. How attempts to avoid failure affect the odds of failure? My view on that is less so much about imposter syndrome. It's just you have to, in a way, set yourself up with room to fail. If you're not failing, you're possibly not learning. Learning by failure is possibly one of the best ways to figure out, especially when you're working in a creative field like sound design, the more chance you've got to screw things up and mess up a sound, the better. You're going to learn from that by a huge amount. And in a way, if all you're doing is setting yourself up to avoid a failure, the more likely I think that you're not moving forward with what you could be learning. You're not going to grow and stretch if you're not setting yourself up to fail, if you're not going out on a limb and trying something new. To me, if you're, all your attempts are just to avoid failure, you're probably playing it safe and not risking anything. The, the greatest rewards come from risk. The more you can put yourself out there, the more you're going to learn if that failure possibly happens. So I think it's really great to give yourself time to fail. Make sure that there is time in your timelines when you're working on things to fail and fail hard. And then you can pick yourself up and learn from that and, and move forward. Yeah, it's, it's all about 
in a way, failing. Failing creatively and failing while learning from that failure. Comparing your own work to that of people who are more or less experienced you. That's certainly one of the things I think with everybody being on the internet, a lot of times we don't know how much experience somebody may have. So we may be comparing ourselves to somebody with a lot more experience than us or a lot less experience than us. So finding that group of people that you can objectively compare yourself to can be hard. And that said, even if you've got the same or similar amount of experience, you know, some people are going to be ahead or behind people and that doesn't really reflect badly on you as a person where you are at in your career and skills. Some of us take longer. Some of us come in late. That's where I think a lot comes into, you know, if you come into this industry a couple of years later than somebody else, you might feel that you're comparing yourself to people of the same age bracket when they've got more experience than you. And that's not really a fair comparison. So we have to, you have to learn to find people that are appropriate to compare your work to, to see if you're, if you're growing at the same kind of rate that others are. And if you're not, if you're getting growing slower than somebody else, as long as you're growing, that's all that matters. So I think we're really lucky in game audio, at least, to have a really supportive group of people, a supportive scene and community that is out there helping people with stuff like imposter syndrome, where lots of people are speaking up that, you know, they're really experienced and they still feel like a fraud at times, that they still feel like everyone's going to catch me and realize that I don't know what I'm talking about. I certainly feel that at times. And while I was doing this, I was trying to think about, you know, I do a podcast. I put that myself out there as basically an expert in things. I'm the one that decided I'm an expert and that I'm going to talk about these things. And people listen to me now. And there's certainly times when I get a little panicked going, people are listening to me. People are following my advice. That's pretty crazy. Who am I to to offer this advice? I have to take a step back and remember, okay, I have been I have been doing this a while. I have picked up a thing or two and some of this is knowledge worth sharing with people. So I think part of that, where that imposter syndrome comes from, I think, is we have in game audio no real qualifications for putting yourself out there and saying I'm an expert in anything. We don't, the majority of what we do is self-taught or taught on the job. Lots of us didn't go to school for sound design. Well, you can do that now. Lots of us don't have that piece of paper that says I went to a school for this. So it's just us saying, hey, I know what I'm doing. I'm an expert now. So I think without any sort of external qualification that can lead to that imposter syndrome that somebody's going to catch me, I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm the only one saying I know what I'm talking about. So I think having a certified paper isn't the solution to that. It's just something, you know, we all have to be aware of. And I think while I hope nobody catches me that I don't know what I'm talking about, I do put out there that anybody who is putting themselves out there online in a public space as an expert, follow up with them, make sure that they do have something to back up uh, what they're claiming. That's not really a solution to the imposter syndrome. It's almost more of a adding to that of, hey, make sure (laughs) check everybody out and make sure that they are who they say they are and that they did they know what they're talking about. But, you know, research, research your own stuff. The more you research and the more you find that multiple sources are saying the same things, uh, I think the more likely you will feel that you are an expert in that area, you know, that you've done it and that you've researched that, you know, five other people do this, this thing that you're doing the same way. I certainly found from going to GDC, the Game Developers Conference, that there are talks that I would go to that didn't necessarily teach me anything new, but showed me that somebody else was doing things the same way I do things. And that was a a concrete validation to me that 
I'm on the right track. I am, I do know what I'm doing and I am doing it right because here's this other group of people that are also doing the same things the same way. So I get that validation from that sort of thing that, you know, I'm not wrong. I'm, I'm right. I am. I do know what I'm doing. Hi, everyone. My name's Graham Donnelly. I'm a freelance sound editor and designer. I work on independent short films, and more often than not these days, I do a bit of game audio. I'm still early in my career, and I've been working in sound for several years, uh, still fighting the good fight of moving upwards, as most of us are. So this kind of leads me into my, uh, my take on the imposter syndrome. Initially, I spoke to Rene on Slack channel, and he mentioned doing this podcast... And I'm an avid listener of the Tone Benders podcast and uh, highly enjoy it, which kind of made me feel a bit anxious and nervous about it in the first place, thinking, am I the right person to be talking on this podcast? Should I be contributing? You know, what have I done that, you know, other people haven't done more of and better than? Who am I to contribute? But then I thought that this was actually quite poignant to the subject, so I decided to dive in and, and record this and send it off. The point is, like, why is it that I feel that I'm not worthy to share my thoughts and opinions and experience with everyone? Okay, I haven't worked on a blockbuster film or, or a AAA game title, but, you know, I'm trying to work my way there in my time so far working. Uh, I've experienced a, a fair amount of imposter syndrome. In any creative field, uh, every person will have suffered this at least once. So what I'm going to do, what I'm contributing to this podcast really is this kind of one time where it really... Uh, it really became an issue for me and how how that shaped me now. So basically a few years back, I managed to get a position working for a company that I was super thrilled to work for. I've been an avid follower of theirs for a long time online of all of their work that they do. And so when I got the opportunity to interview, I was over the moon. And the fact that I got the job was kind of like a dream come true. So I was extremely excited to have this opportunity and, you know, kind of terrified at the same time. I was excited for the challenge and also terrified of falling flat on my face. So anyway, I began working for this company. You know, meeting the creative director was really inspiring. You know, the first few times that we met and had conversations, got my creative juices flowing. So I was super keen, super eager, and I went in on my first day really, really clear and feeling creative. Now, a lot of the work that they do was a bit more on the abstract side, a lot more short form and, you know, sound design I guess, sort of trailers, um, TV promo stuff like that, stuff that I've never really done before. I'd normally done uh, sort of foley editing and cutting and sound designing for films. Um, so you know, straight away I was out of my comfort zone. But anyway, you know, I was excited to be challenged and, and see where this this opportunity would take me. So I popped in, and in my first week or so, I was given a couple of jobs, which I completed. Everyone was happy with it, and I got some great feedback. I got my first couple of bits of broadcast, which you know was awesome. Uh, over the moon about. It was about a week or so after that that I was given uh, quite a high-profile job for a worldwide company, to which I was extremely excited and uh, couldn't wait to jump in and start. Now, as with any project, I was given a, a very specific brief from the company and from the creative director and was told I had to follow it very specifically. Briefs are standard, so I set about starting this work and uh, knocked out a first pass to which I submitted to uh, my creative director, and I got feedback. The feedback that I got was it's not detailed enough, needed more depth, more intricacy. So I thought, okay, cool. Uh, I know how to take my feedback, I know how to adapt my work to it. So I redid the piece and uh, took into account what I was told. Did another pass, sent it off. Again, it came back to me with more detail, and I was told that the sound design was too muddy and not powerful enough. Okay, Back to the drawing board. So off I went again. This time uh, I did what I probably should have done in the first place and I stripped out all of the what I thought was the unnecessary audio and got a lot more surgical with my EQs, you know, paying extreme attention to every sound that was in there, the placement of the sound, you know, and shifting focus using EQ, paying attention to the frequency content to make sure that everything was clear and cutting through fine. Did that. I was quite happy with it. Sent it off. Feedback came. <laughs> Not enough detail. Too muddy still. So at this point, my confidence starts to shake. I'm thinking, it doesn't sound that muddy to me, but, you know, being, as you're sort of heavily involved in a project, you, you get caught up with it, so maybe you're missing something. 
So I played the piece to one of my colleagues at the time and he came back saying that he thought the work was good, the sounds were clear and the direction was solid and the pacing was great. I took that and uh, I tweaked the piece a bit more, a bit more levelling, a bit more EQ, got a bit more harsh with myself, dropping bits, you know, maybe changing bits up. So I tweaked it and I submitted it for feedback. This next bit of feedback is kind of where uh, where it kind of sort of tipped me over a little bit. The creative director got back to me saying that I was not understanding the piece and wasn't understanding the direction. To which, you know, I, I agreed and suggested that sitting down together to go through it and clarify was probably needed. So we, we arranged that, we organised that. It was at this point, though, that my confidence had completely shot. I was starting to tell myself that, that I was incapable, that my work that I was doing was absolute garbage and that, you know, I was crumbling under pressure. The main reason I felt this was probably because, you know, you, you get told to create a piece of work, you know, to follow certain guidelines, but obviously have your sort of own creative input on it, to which I'd been doing. Up until this point, I thought, OK, you know, I'm doing an, an OK job here. I'm doing a good job. And to be told that it was wrong over and over and over again, it can be very, very disheartening. And not to the point in which, you know, you think, OK, you know, I can reapproach this because you can do that so many times. But after a while, you start to question your own integrity, your own skill, and whether you're actually ever going to nail this piece of work. I like to equate it to sort of making a cup of coffee. If someone asks you to make a cup of coffee, and you go and make a cup of coffee, and you, you take it to them, and they say, oh, that coffee's rubbish, make me another one. You're going to ask some questions, like, was it too sugary? Was it too strong, too weak? Then you take the information, go and make another one. Come back, say, oh, no, this coffee's rubbish. So you'd ask again, then you go back and you try again. And it's only going to take two or three times of doing this before you realise that you're probably a bit shit at making coffee. Don't make it. Make tea instead. And this is kind of how I was uh, how I was feeling at the time. I was thinking maybe, basically a bit of background is this was one of the first sort of proper pro jobs that I had after coming out of training and, and working freelance for a bit. So I was thinking, um, I was punching above my weight, that I wasn't worthy to be working at that company and that maybe someone else should have gotten the position instead of me. So what I did, being the person that I am, rather than giving up, I like to try and push through and, and endeavour to, to better myself. So I went in over the weekend and completely started fresh. New Pro Tools session, completely blank, started again. Now, there's, in this particular piece, there was, there was a scene, it was probably about five seconds long, um, which was literally a, a slow-motion glass break with thousands of tiny glass particles glistening through the light. Now, obviously, I haven't been told that my work wasn't detailed enough, that it was standing a bit muddy. I thought I'll start with that because I'm pretty sure that was the scene that they were referring to. So I started with that and literally built this smash with, uh, rather than just taking a couple of glass smash effects and putting it on there, I built it from hundreds of individual small glass and sparkly type sounds, sections of bell trees and wind chimes, using virtual instruments and granular synths, placed them for every shard of glass that was, that was in the shop. Uh, and I got very, very surgical on the frequency content, uh, the panning, clarity and placement. And I spent about three hours on this uh, one five-second scene and built it up from the ground. Now, I'm probably quite biased, but that was probably the most detailed work that I've done and that I've sort of heard in a scene similar to that. So, you know, need to say I was quite pleased with it. There's no way that uh, this was going to come back to me with the creative director saying that it wasn't detailed enough. And yep, you can probably see where this is going. The feedback that I got was not detailed enough. We need to look at it again. So this devastated me completely. I was obviously failing, not up to the task, not good enough to be here in this company. And, you know, maybe I wasn't very good at working with sound and maybe I should quit or reevaluate what it is that I, that I should be doing. I've always had, up until that point, I always had very positive feedback. I'm not saying that I never had any negative feedback, but the majority of it was positive. And I'm starting to think, have I overestimated my skill? Maybe I'm not good, and maybe my, the work that I've done previously have been flukes or lucky results. So, as you can imagine, this mindset then sends you down a black hole of anxiety and self-doubt, which made it even harder for me to then complete this work. So I did actually become useless then as a result, because my, my own thinking was that I wasn't worthy to be here or to be working on such a piece of work with the, with the guys that I was working with. And this also spilled over into my outside life, outside of work. So not only did I now have no confidence at work and any sort of self-belief in the work that I was doing, but this carried on outside of work and in the evenings and weekends. 
I became quite depressed as a result because I spent many, many years studying and working and learning and developing. And now it's come down to it. I can't do this. I'm, I'm no good. And this is where I genuinely felt like an absolute imposter in the company. And more so when I walked into work on the following Monday, knowing that my work's going to be uh, sent back again and told that I'm shit. The guys I was working with, extremely talented. You know, I was working with a composer who could knock out, you know, stuff that were very sort of similar to sort of Hans Zimmer. And he'd be able to do that in the morning. And there's me, I've spent like three or four days now, including my weekend, working on something that is nowhere near as good as it should be. It got to the point where I was close to uh, actually going into the creative director and speaking to the, the head of the companies and handing my notice in, explaining to them that, you know, I didn't think that I was, I was worthy of holding the position that I had and that maybe they should take someone else on. Because I'm the type of person that I, I don't like to waste other people's time and obviously having, having a member of staff in... Uh, there's a lot of investment for any company, regardless of the size. And I genuinely felt that they'd probably be better off without me. But one thing that I do or don't do, should I say, is I, I don't quit. I do get down, sort of depressed sometimes, depending on how my workflow is going and so on and so forth. But, you know, I won't quit. In it. So I decided to uh, take a last-ditch attempt at this. And whatever the outcome was, it would determine whether I was going to stay at this company or whether I should sort of bow out and and leave. So I spoke to the production manager who I was working quite closely with uh, during my time here and I was straight up with him and I said, look, I'm struggling with this piece and it seems that no matter what I do, I take it to the creative director and the creative director throws it out straight away. And he got back to me, having worked at this company for many years, saying that, yeah, this happens. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes it's the often the people leading charge with the briefs, sometimes they don't really know what they want or they've worded it wrong and it hasn't come across on paper. So he showed me some of the previous works that he'd done for the same company, same client, and he pulled up the Pro Tools session and we sat and we watched them. And I looked at his sessions and they were extremely sparse. You know, he had far less tracks than what I was running and he was far more cutthroat with what he put in there. But they sounded amazing. So after watching this and having a chat with him, he gave me a little bit more confidence back it's given me at least enough to attempt it one more time. So if I went, new session. At this point, I completely disregarded the brief and literally decided to do what I thought was right, judging by what I'd seen with the previous work and, and what I'd gone through with the production manager and what I thought the piece actually needed and what fit, rather than sticking to every sort of small sub-brief that I was given. So I smashed the whole piece out in uh, about three hours and I sent it away and I waited for the feedback. And at this point, I was convinced that it was going to come back as terrible and it was going to be another just a wasted afternoon. But I had nothing left to lose. By this point, I was kind of at the bottom. I sent it off, did what I thought was right, and uh, it turns out that that, that was right. Um, the feedback that I received after that, other than a few minor tweaks, uh, mix corrections, uh, came back. That it, was, it was perfect. It was spot on. So now I'll go over the situation again in my head. It, you know, it seems quite obvious. I was, I was terrified of being found out to be an imposter. I managed to get myself worked up into the situation so much so that I missed the key point. That the main reason that you got hired or the main reason that you do what you do is because you tend to have... Everyone's got their own unique voice and everyone has a certain style. And you can do it. You've just got to do it. It seems weird saying it out loud. And there's that uh, niggling imposter's voice in the back of the head again saying, you know, that's so arrogant. And you do. If you've been working in any creative field for a while and, and you've done some work, you're only going to improve over and over again. And so that kind of allowed me to sort of pick myself up again, knowing that by doing what I felt was right, it actually allowed me to gain a little bit of confidence back because it allowed me to say to myself, yeah, OK, so you can navigate through this. You're not a complete imposter. There is something going on there. So don't give up just yet. Now, what I'm saying is that I'm not saying that disregarding the brief was a good idea, you know, and there's always going to be briefs to, briefs to stick to. So, you know, obviously there was a few tweaks to do uh, afterwards that, that needed to be done for the brief, you know, and I like to stick to my briefs as much as I can. But what I've come to learn is that I, I let my natural intuition lead the way now, and I kind of go with how, how I feel, what I feel the piece needs and, and works. And then I go from there and then I, then I start tailoring into briefs and and taking the feedback and applying it to the work. And th this was the only way that I was able to sort of build my confidence back up. Now, after this point, in the last weeks I was at the company, actually, I got a briefing in the morning. I skimmed it, I got the pictures, and I smashed out first draft really, really quickly. 
creative director came into me that lunchtime and started explaining what the piece should sound like to me, having no idea that I'd already knocked out a, a version of it. And so I said, oh, was it something like this? And I played him work and the creative director stopped the piece about 20 seconds in, turned to me and said, that's exactly what I meant. That's exactly what I wanted. And from that point onwards, well, I, I realised that I was capable, that I could do the work that was up to the standard of this company and that I wasn't actually an imposter. I, I was able to carry on and, and work forward from there. But the whole experience was very disheartening and um, the amount of uh, anxiety that I went through during that was quite heavy and, and no one should really have to go through something like that just to, in order to learn that you have got a decent inner voice and an intuition that you should stick true to. To me, imposter syndrome, it comes down to self-perception and it's doubt. And in any creative field where you're creating, there's always going to be doubt there. And the only way that we really get rid of that is through sort of validity from others, which is where feedback becomes so important. Having this situation happen to me and, and this piece, as much as it was horrible... Nowadays, whenever I'm I'm in the situation where I think I can't do this, what am I doing? Uh, there's a hundred other people that are better than me out there that you know should be doing this. Or I should be doing something else. I, I always think back to the situation, and I, I can get into the mindset of how I was, uh, and then all I have to do is remember what happened at the end of this, and then I kind of manage to pull myself out of it. But that's not saying that it never happens. I think we all. We all get it, and it kind of comes in waves, uh, sometimes more on certain projects than others. And I think what it is is that we like to specialise as uh, sound professionals, I guess. And if you're strong in one area and you're working in that area, then you feel as though, you know, you should be in that area because you're good at it. If you step outside your comfort zone, which is, uh, as creative people, we should do and we should all be encouraged to do so, this is where the doubt comes in because it's something that you, you don't necessarily see as as a skill that you have and you're kind of learning. And I think that's where it comes in. The doubts amplify and then you start to question whether you're actually worthy of doing the job. How would I deal with it these days is uh, I refer back to this in my own head and I'll step away, take a break, try and do something else, even if that's just whip up another Pro Tools session and start editing some sound effects or, or doing some sound design. But I don't ignore it. I embrace it and I, hopefully I can recognise when it's there. I definitely understand it. it'll always be there. And the thing that you just got to try and do is summon the strength to um, remove it when it does pop up. But one thing's for sure, I'm not going to let myself get as deep into the uh, imposter depression hole as I did in the past because it's a negative cycle and it's a case of depression feeding depression. If you tell yourself you can't do it, you won't be able to do it. Whereas the opposite is also true. If you tell yourself that you can do it and, and you have a positive attitude, then you'll get there. So that's my uh, that's my kind of take on it. I hope it kind of makes sense. And I hope that at some point, you know, if you if you ever get into a situation where you feel you're not worthy, that um, you can recall this and, and just, just remember you can. You just need to listen to yourself and have confidence in yourself. And if you do that, then the chances are you're going to meet your brief and probably exceed the brief. So just believe in yourselves. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Okay, my name is Rene Coronado, and I have imposter syndrome sometimes. So I want to give a quick story of my latest bout that, uh, that really had me reeling. And it happened this past month. So there was a specific project that came in. It was a documentary film that had a whole lot of off-center, um, non-literal kind of sound design that was required of it. It also had very high expectations from the client. It was Russian language. And there was a scene that was about 20 minutes long that was basically a nightmare uh, imagined scenario of what would happen in World War II that, that, uh, that was imagined by the, um, the artist that the documentary was featuring. So even before I got the cut in, the producers of the film had emailed me a document that was about 15 pages of notes on how to approach 
the film. That's a lot of notes, right? And this is a film that actually had come through the studio about a year before and somehow like got pulled in the middle of production, stopped, and they basically continued to reshoot and re-edit the film for about a year and then bring it back to us. So I had already kind of had my head not right about what this project was because we had put a lot of work into it and then we just kind of saw it disappear. And then all of a sudden one day it shows back up on our doorstep and I get handed this big stack of notes. And as I'm looking at the scene, the notes are asking for things like building, crescendo, building, 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 even bigger, even bigger, even bigger. And to execute something like that, you got to start kind of small and build and build and build and build and build. And one thing that I kind of run into sometimes when I get asked for that is that they don't want things to build and build and build and build. When they ask for things to build and build and build, they want things to start huge and stay huge throughout. And as I'm looking at the pictures on this particular film, it's super fast, stylized cuts, sometimes three and four shots overlaid on top of each other with varying opacities of things like missiles being launched and people being shot and hung and bombs and explosions and sickness and pestilence and disease and that kind of stuff. It's kind of hard subject matter to put your head into and sit in and work with for long periods of time because it's emotionally draining to do it. So there was that factor on top of the fact that the specific scene that we're looking at was 20 minutes of this. It was just a lot. The honest truth about what I do every day is not incredibly high art stuff. Probably half of what I do on any given day is recording and editing voices. I do a lot, a lot of voice cutting. I am the lead sound designer here, but even given that, most of the sound design that I do, it's less, you know, abstract, artsy design and more utilitarian, make this sound like it looks kind of stuff in a lot of cases. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, yeah, I do this a lot, but I don't do this all day, every day. So even though I have probably thousands of reps. I don't have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of reps, and I still have tons and tons of learning to do. I know I'm not as good at this as I hope to be if I just keep doing it more and more, right? I know I'm not as good at this as the people that are the best at this are. So, you know, I kind of, I got the film in and I had to get my feet under me, you know? I had to I had to put some paint on the canvas and kind of do something and I was very kind of lost with the specific direction I was getting from all the notes that came in because they weren't real specific. You know, it wasn't do this, do this, do this. It was we're going for this and think about something like this and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So in order to get my feet under myself, I just cut all the sync sounds in, right? So anytime there was a rocket blasting, I put the sound of a rocket, et cetera, et cetera. So I at least had a foundation under it. And then on top of that, in the gaps, I tried to do some abstract weird shit, you know, put some distortion in there and have it, you know, bleeding and feeding back and, you know, panning around and adding some voices and babies crying and this kind of other stuff. And just kind of making it try and feel as uneasy as I could make it feel. And then I had him come in and we watched the scene. And then we basically spent three hours breaking it apart and, and, and kind of being told all the other stuff I needed to do. And this was really stressful on me. I'm very fortunate with a lot of my clients in that not only do I have 100% creative freedom with the vast majority of the sound design work that I do, but I also very rarely get any kind of meaningful revision requests back. 
And that's more a function of who my clients are, I think, and the relationships that I have with my clients than it is with any, like, level of skill that I have. But I, you know, I'm just not entirely polished in handling that type of thing. People that work, like one of my coworkers that works in music, I mean, he deals with this all the time where he'll spend time and work and produce a music cut and show it to the client and the client will want something completely different than what he just showed them. Um, Even sometimes despite what they asked him for on the front end. He knows how to deal with that and he's much more uh, practiced at dealing with that situation than I am. And so when I looked up and I saw myself in that situation, I wasn't sure how to get myself out of that situation. And I got angry. And I'm not an angry person, but I got, I got mad at the situation, at myself, at the clients, at the project. You know, I'm stomping around the control room going, this, these people are unreasonable. Their requests make no sense. This film is stupid. Clearly, I know what I'm doing and they don't know what they're asking for. And what's their problem? And, and I was trying to take the situation and push it out on people. And then I was also trying to push it out on my boss and, you know, just life in general, you know. I felt like I wasn't put in a in a position to do well on this project and blah, blah, blah. I was really harboring problems with what my role was and what the project was and what I was being asked to do. I was having a hard time with it, a real hard time with it. So I just kind of sat and wallowed in that for like a few days. It was really bad. It was really bad. And I'd jump online and I'd ask people, you know, for this and that. And then at some point on the Game Audio Slack channel, Dustin, who you'll remember from the earlier episodes of of Tonebenders, posted up a YouTube video of a bunch of big name, massive composers sitting around talking about their own anxieties presenting their work to film directors. So you had Danny Elfman and Trent Reznor and, you know, those types of composers, that caliber of composer sitting there going, yeah, man, the worst thing is when I sit there and I work on something and I get close to it. And, and the first time I play it for the director, that is the most nervous, sick to my stomach feeling I can have because I don't know if the director's going to like it or not. And I felt like that's where I was at. I felt like I had worked on something and presented it and it got rejected and I was taking that rejection too personally. I was I was taking that rejection like it was a rejection of me when in fact it was it wasn't even a rejection of the work because yeah they sat in here with me for 3 hours and said hey we need to do all this other stuff but then they were very careful to say at the end of that meeting hey don't delete what you did we just want you to add to it and change it and warp it more but don't delete it you're in you're in a good starting spot you know and they told me hey we want you to really feel creatively satisfied at the end of this. We want you to feel creatively like you got to do something cool at the end of this project. And I had to, I was kind of gritting my teeth and smiling because I was very frustrated when they were telling me that. But they were coming from a good place. And it, in the end, it was good that they said it because even though I wasn't receptive to that in the moment that they told it to me, I was able to reach back into that conversation and grab a hold of that and find it and, and, and use it to pull myself through my own kind of internal despair and angst that I was going through with the notion that I could not deliver sound design on the level that they wanted. You know, I had to let my ego go. I had to let my ego, set my own ego aside and go back and use my experience and explore my tools and it was reassuring to see the composers in the roundtable talk about how they suffer from the anxiety. But what was more useful to me was to watch them talk about the tools that they use to work through that specific type of problem. And it's not about just throwing crap against the wall and making a bunch of noise. It's about doing off-the-wall stuff but doing it in a meaningful and purposeful way having a reason 
a story reason for doing anything that you do, right? And I knew this, and fundamentally what I was trying to do instead of that was I was trying to paint with broad strokes and splash a bunch of paint on the wall, and I needed to uh, to break out some finer brushes. One of the steps that I used was to uh, to still try and make things meaningful and still try and make the sink kind of make sense, but in an off-kilter way, in a little bit of the way that the dark side of the moon kind of sinks with the Wizard of Oz kind of way in that it's not exactly literal, but it is um, still kind of exactly right. And so I kind of had to allow myself the freedom or the latitude to go out and try some stuff that may or may not work. What was holding me back initially was I was trying to paint too close inside the lines because I was trying to avoid failure. I was working really hard to avoid failure. And what happened when I did that was I increased my odds of failure on this specific project because of the aesthetic that they were going for, because they wanted something not literal. I ended up going literal on my initial pass, and it just wasn't what they were asking me for. And once I allowed myself to basically go through and mute just big swaths of everything that I had done, I liked it a lot better because there were parts of it that just felt more disconnected. And then I had the the freedom and the ability to start adding other different kind of stuff in and using screams and, you know, like human vocalizations on tanks and things like that. But still finding sync points and doing some pitch things that were still kind of syncing to picture, even though the source was not anywhere remotely, literally what it was. And, you know, splattering in some Russian language speeches about United States imperialism and blah, 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 and this kind of stuff around it. And then the other step that was really, really important was bringing my coworker, Brad, in and saying, hey, man, look at what I've done here and break it apart and help me make it better. And that's something that I don't do enough of. It's something I should do more of. But it was, again, because I was internally fighting my own ego on it, it was not something that I did naturally or easily. It ended up being a huge mistake to not go outside of my own head earlier. Because when you when you bring in outside trusted voices, they will reinforce certain things that you're doing that are working and they will add to those things that you're doing and direct your eyes to some internal blind spots that you might have. So what Brad kind of gave me was the idea of crowds, even though I'm not saying crowds, but maybe crowds hearing the Russian language voice that was railing against imperialism and reacting positively to that. And, you know, the fact that someone could say something crazy and then a whole bunch of people would agree with him and cheer that is more scary than the concept of the one guy saying crazy things on its own. So things like that really just kind of took what I was doing, took my starting point and cranked it up another notch and it totally worked and it translated to the clients. The clients were so happy that we had kind of gone there and put cheering crowds under this off-screen decapitated voice and they they got the same kind of visceral emotional reaction that we got and it was from an idea that didn't come from me and it was because I had to step aside and bring in other voices and ask for help and be receptive to the help as it came to me. When I got to the end of this process, and the second time the clients came in and they saw all this new stuff that we did, they had no changes. They said, that's perfect. You nailed it. We love it. And they walked out and, and they were done. And instead of me getting beat up for three hours, I got praised for about 20 minutes. And it was like the best thing ever. And I slept like a baby. Oh, I slept so good. It was great. And you know, what happened was at the end of this, I had other projects going on simultaneously. And I, because I had been pushed so far out of my comfort zone and so far out of what I was used to doing, that my starting point on these other projects ended up being more left field. And it ended up being more artistically rich and more creative and uh, less literal. I, I had a, I had a, a more advanced starting point on my other projects because I had been pushed and stretched in this project. And I'm grateful for that. And I have to be grateful for that 
because even though it was it was painful and it was uncomfortable and it was difficult, it was in the end something that pushed me and it made me grow and it made me better. And part of the problem I had initially was because it was unexpected, right? Because I wasn't going out consciously looking to grow and push. This was something that was kind of foisted upon me. That made it all the more difficult. But in the end, the, the fact is that it was very, very rewarding. And the couple of things I learned was, A, I need to go out and consciously push myself more so that I'm not so damn uncomfortable with it and so that I don't get taken by such surprise when I find myself in those situations. And B, I need to be grateful and receptive to the people that bring me projects that do push me and that do challenge me. I need to see those people and those projects as positive and good things for me earlier on in the process. Because things that are hard are things that make you better. If I'm not pushing and I'm not evolving, then I'm stagnating. And sometimes it's easy to kind of get in a groove and, and go along to get along and just roll with the things that you know you're good at. But sometimes you kind of do have to push outside your boundaries and expand your scope a little bit. And every time you do that, your starting point, your default aesthetic becomes that much more advanced. So that's what I learned. It was painful. It was like being stretched on the rack, you know, but in the end it was worth it and I kind of got a little taller. So there we have it. Okay, so those are all of our stories. So let's wrap up a couple of quick things that I think we can take from this. How do you avoid imposter syndrome in the first place as much as you can? And then when you do face it, how do you work through it? I think one of the important things to recognize and to do as you're kind of conducting your daily business is to not tell yourself or tell other people how smart you are or how good you are at things. Because when you run into obstacles, you won't have been training yourself with the tools to overcome those obstacles. And you will put yourself in a position subconsciously to try and avoid having your intelligence or your creativity called into question or challenged. And in the long run, that's not healthy. The more healthy thing is to, in a controlled but steady fashion, push and challenge your own creative abilities and your own creative pre-contexts. So it's important, yes, on one hand, to market yourself as the quote-unquote expert, but it's equally as important internally to recognize that no matter how much better you are at this than the people who are hiring you, you still have to put in a lot of work every day to try and get good enough to meet your own aesthetic. There's the brilliant Ira Glass quote that I will insert here. Nobody uh, tells people who are beginners, and I really wish somebody had told this to me, is that um, all of us who do creative work, like, you know, we get into it, and we get into it because we have good taste. But it's like there's a gap that for the first couple of years that you're making stuff, what you're making isn't so good, okay? It's not that great. It's, it's, it's trying to be good. It has ambition to good, but it's not quite that good. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, your, your taste is still killer. And your taste is good enough that you can tell that what you're making is kind of a disappointment to you. You know what I mean? A lot of people never get past that phase. A lot of people at that point, they quit. And the thing I, I would just like say to you with all my heart is that m most everybody I know who does interesting creative work they went through a phase of years where they had really good taste, they could tell what they were making wasn't as good as they wanted it to be. They knew it felt short. It didn't have this special thing that we wanted it to have. And 
And the thing I would say to you is everybody goes through that. And for you to go through it, if you're going through it right now, if you're just getting out of that phase, you got to know it's totally normal. And the most important possible thing you could do is do a lot of work. Do a huge volume of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week or every month you know you're going to finish one story. Because it's only by actually going through a volume of work that you're actually going to ca catch up and close that gap. And your the work you're making will be as good as your ambitions. In my case, like I, I took longer to figure out how to do this than anybody I've ever met. It takes a while. It's going to take you a while. It's normal to take a while. And you just have to fight your way through that. Okay? And that quote is about putting in the work and pushing yourself and learning day by day, step by step, how to do the things that you like to do. And I think if you, if you approach your own craft with that mentality, with the workman-like mentality, you'll go pretty far with regards to avoiding imposter syndrome type situations in the first place. And then when something that is maybe a little bit beyond your immediate comfortable skill set gets thrown at you, here are the tools that you can use. One, go to your peers and ask for advice. Two, define your own process. You know, break it into parts, break it into the pieces that you understand, and at least get your feet under yourself as a starting point, and then try and move on from there. And three, give yourself the latitude and the permission to try some stuff that probably won't work. And then also give yourself the latitude and the permission to not beat yourself up when those things that were probably not going to work don't work. Because that's the only way to really find those moments that you didn't think were going to work that actually do work. And again, ideally you're doing this to some degree in your regular day-to-day -day work in advance. But sometimes that type of stuff is just thrust at you. And when that is the case, then you have to really consciously set aside some latitude to try some stuff and not beat yourself up if those things that you're trying that you're not used to doing don't work. I mean, these are difficult challenges. These are the types of situations that make us uncomfortable. They make us question our competence. And we don't all start out imminently competent at everything. We don't all sit in our current jobs at a level of complete competence of everything that we may or may not get thrown at. But the bottom line is that you do have to anchor yourself against your own aesthetic and you have to anchor yourself against the things that make sense to you as an individual and as an artist. And you have to try and reconcile those things with the creative and artistic vision of your client. And sometimes it's not obvious how those things will work. But you just kind of have to get in there and start working the clay a bit until something worthwhile comes out of it. But even while you're in there working it, you have to recognize that people at all levels of all of these industries, from the highest level to the lowest level, are struggling with the idea that they may or may not be good enough to do this particular job. It happens a lot. And if it's not happening to you, then you're not being challenged enough. And you're putting yourself at risk of running into a situation where a client will ask something of you that is so difficult and the curve is so steep that you don't know how to approach it. So put in the work in advance, put in the work ahead of time as much as you can. And when you run into walls, don't beat yourself up, put your ego aside, ask for help from people you trust, try things that you're afraid to try sometimes don't tell yourself you're not good enough. And also be careful not to reject success when you do come across it. If you find something that works, that, that you're okay with, and that your client likes, 
especially on the tail end of some imposter syndrome. Don't beat that up either. It's important to get that kind of stuff out and, and make it work. So it's a tough subject. It's a tough concept because we all deal with it and none of us like talking about it because it is an intimate and emotional type thing that we feel like we're struggling with alone, but we're not. And the more that we do discuss this kind of thing with each other and share the kind of stories, not only of what it felt like, but also of how we worked through it, the more we'll be able to recognize that these types of feelings and these types of situations are not unique to us and they're not, they're not unique to, to the individual project that we happen to be working on and that there are ways to work through them and to move past them. So there we have it. Hugs for everybody. High fives. You can do this. I can do this. We are good enough to make these things happen. We just got to find the angle and the path out of the maze. And when you do it and you get to the other side, it is the most amazing feeling. It's hard work and it's painful in the middle of it. When you come out the other side, it's the best thing ever. All right. That's all I got. See ya. Thanks for listening to Tone Benders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.